definition of the church, it's the community of all true believers for all time. We talked about that last week. Um, uh, the church is invisible yet visible. It's kind of two overlapping circles. So we've got a little bit, can go down a little bit on the volume here. Okay. <clears throat> Um, so that the, the church invisible is the church as God sees it. It's really all those who are genuinely born again are members of Christ's body, the church, and the church invisible. <clears throat> um, and then the church visible is the church as Christians on earth see it. But as we, as we mentioned, uh, not everybody who is in the church visible, like everybody who's there in the worship service on Sunday morning, is born again. Some are visitors, some just have come for the first time, and some maybe come and, and don't really accept everything and haven't trusted Christ as their Savior. So in the visible church, you get some unbelievers. And then in the visible church, not all believers are part of the visible church. For some reason, they're out of town or they're sick or they can't come to church anymore, or some shouldn't happen but aren't regularly attending a church, and so they're not quite exactly the same, the visible and the invisible church. Um, the invisible church is the church as God sees it. The visible church is the church as Christians on earth see it. And it always has some unbelievers. And then we talked about the church being local or universal. You can talk about the church worldwide, or you can talk about Scottsdale Bible Church, a local church. And then we talked about a number of metaphors for the church. It's like a family. It's the bride of Christ. It's uh, branches on a vine. It's an olive tree, a field, a building, a harvest, a new temple, a new group of priests, God's house. It's the body of Christ in a couple of different senses. And we talked about the church in Israel, and um, uh, dispensationalism would see them as two distinct groups on into the future. And I made a mistake last week. I was not thinking clearly when I said that dispensationalists will say in the millennium the church is up in heaven and Israel is on the earth. It's not that. It's during the tribulation the church is, the Israel is uh, on earth and the church is up in heaven. And so dispensationalists would see a distinction there, and non-dispensationalists like me would say, well, we, re we are the inheritors of the, of the Old Testament promises uh, to Israel, and we are the new Israel, the new people of God, and that the Jewish people who are being saved today from a Jewish heritage, Jewish background, become part of the church. They're not to be a, a distinct, separate group in the future. It's a small point, and it's a point that doesn't really affect, I think, much of anything else in in people's doctrine, but we did talk about it. So that was where we ended up last week. Now we come to point six, the church and the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is the rule or reign of God over people's hearts and lives and over other parts of creation. And so the kingdom of God and the church are not quite the same. Now, here we are this morning, and we are at Scottsdale Bible Church. We're, we're part of the church. But, but you go out into the community and um, somebody gives you too much change at the hardware store and you say, wait a minute, you gave me $20 too much in change and you give the right amount, you give it back and, and all of a sudden the transaction is made right because you were honest. Well, that is the kingdom of God manifesting itself. It's God's rule or reign in your heart, in your life, influencing that transaction at the hardware store. But that's, that hardware store is not the church. It's just the kingdom of God poked into the church, into the, into the hardware store, right? Am I making sense? Okay, or uh, you're a public school teacher, and um, you um, begin to model and talk about your own life and talk to the children about maybe moral purity, about kindness, 
about uh, truthfulness in speech, about honesty with money, about hard work, about honoring your parents. You begin to show the values of the kingdom of God in your classroom. All of a sudden, the kingdom, that, the kingdom, that classroom is not the church. You're part of the church, but the kingdom of God is poking into that classroom. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? It's God's reign or rule influencing people's lives. Even, even some people who don't become Christians, they get the influence of the kingdom of God. Or <clears throat> missionaries go out to Tanzania and, from Scottsdale Bible Church, and they dig a well. And the well starts providing water to the community and meeting people's needs and helping their lives. The kingdom of God is poking its way into Tanzania. Do you see what I'm saying? So, so the kingdom of God is... It's, it's a bigger concept than just the church. But as we have influence on the world... Oh, here's another example. In a family, say in Scottsdale, a non-Christian family, all of a sudden the mom hears the gospel message somehow and puts her trust in Christ. And her relationship to her kids changes. Her relationship to her husband changes. All of a sudden the kingdom of God begins influencing that family and that neighborhood. <clears throat> right? <clears throat> so the kingdom of God spreads beyond the church. It's God's reign or rule in people's hearts and lives and over other parts of creation. I think um, the sermon that we just heard last hour from Jamie uh, talking about the thorns and thistles and the, and the nature being fallen as a result of, um, as a result of sin and uh, Christians bring, um, if Christians begin to think, you know, I'm called by God to subdue the earth and have dominion, and they begin to use uh, their, their intellect to develop new crops, new uh, insect-resistant crops, new uh, ways of combating weeds or new ways of irrigation or, or taking salt out of the uh, ocean water, John, or whatever, um, then all of a sudden the, the wisdom that God has given us used in obedience to God's purposes for the earth begins to manifest itself in agriculture. And all of a sudden, we see something, a little hint of the kingdom of God protruding into agriculture or desalination or, or whatever. So the kingdom of God works through you constantly. And so the kingdom and the church are a little bit different. The, uh, and there's a lot of talk about the kingdom of God in the New Testament. Jesus talked about it a lot. And... Uh, um, and uh, I just thought we'd point these things out. Now, George Ladd, uh, former professor at Fuller Seminary, has now died and gone to be with the Lord. But he has five points that I'm going to mention here. The church is not the kingdom. Jesus and the early church, early Christians, preached that the kingdom of God was near, not that the church was near. They preached the good news of the kingdom, not the good news of the church. Isn't that interesting? Church is wonderful, it's important, but the kingdom of God is even a bigger idea. The kingdom creates the church. As people enter God's kingdom and we're born again, then we become members of the church. We're joined to the human fellowship of the believers in the church. Uh, the church witnesses to the kingdom. Jesus said the gospel of the kingdom, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world, uh, that, that God's reign or rule is advancing uh, through the earth. Uh, the church is the instrument of the kingdom. So the Holy Spirit manifesting the power of the kingdom works through the disciples to heal the sick and cast out demons as it did in the ministry of Jesus. And he said, uh, 
if by the Spirit of God I cast out demons. The kingdom of God has come upon you. All of a sudden, when people are set free from this demonic oppression, the kingdom of God is being manifested in their lives, the freedom from, from Satan. And the church is the custodian of the kingdom because the church has been given the keys of the kingdom of heaven. We'll talk about that in more detail later about Matthew 16, uh, Matthew 16, 19. But I think as we proclaim the gospel to others, that's the key to enter the kingdom of heaven and become part of its work. So do you want to talk about that at all before I go on? That's just like five minutes on the kingdom of God. Something, yeah, we could. Yeah, Clyde. Yeah. Does oh, man, when does ahead. man enter the kingdom? When we become born again. When do we enter the kingdom? When we become born again. But if I'm at the hardware store and I make the transaction right, the clerk doesn't enter the kingdom, but is touched by the kingdom, is influenced by the kingdom. Is that making sense? Is that? Uh, unless a man is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, said Jesus in John 3. So I think when we're born again, we become part of the kingdom. Okay? And that, that's a nice image because it's saying, hey, we're all soldiers advancing the kingdom. Or we're all servants uh, sent out by the king. Uh, okay? It's, it's, a good, it's a good thing. I think when Christians... Uh, you, where, where do most of the hospitals originate in the United States? It was Christians that started to build them, wasn't it? I, I was born, actually, I was born in a Catholic hospital in um, Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin. Um, and uh, one of our sons was born in a Lutheran hospital in uh, Eau Claire, Wisconsin. And uh, what do we have? Baptist Hospital just down in Phoenix here, don't we? A lot of those Christians thinking, hey, we're going to invest ourselves in bringing health and healing to people. I think that's a manifestation of the kingdom, um, just to do good for others. Okay? Anything else? Like Harvard. Harvard. Yeah, colleges. Oh, yeah. Uh, there were founded, many of them, uh, by Christians who wanted to bring education. Uh, good. Yeah, John. Okay. That's the kingdom of God. All right? That's just a little blip, little parentheses on that. That's kind of an exciting thing, and maybe sometime we'll spend more time talking about that. Um, now, B. We've got to come to point B on the outline. Uh, we talked about the nature of the church. Now, on the back page, we've got the marks of the church. The marks of the church, distinguishing characteristics. For uh, many centuries, people didn't have to ask, you know, how do you know what a church is? Because there was only uh, one church in any area, and it was the, what became the Roman Catholic Church. But starting in 1517, when Martin Luther began the Protestant Reformation, um, all of a sudden, people started meeting in groups. Eventually, they started meeting in groups that weren't part of the recognized church, and they started to say, well, how do you know what the church is? And so um, this question came up, well, what do you, you know, if, if you've got a group of people meeting and they're studying the Bible, is that a church? Um, what, is the, what, is make a tr what makes a true church? Well, first, we've got to recognize that there are true and false churches. And uh, there are religious organizations that are not true churches. In the, in, uh, in the city of Corinth, in the first century, Paul says, No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I don't want you, you to be participants with demons. Uh, Margaret and I have walked around ancient Corinth 
And you go around, you go down these ruins of the ancient city, and this is the temple to this Greek god, and the temple to this Roman god, and the temple to this god, and this god. They're all temples to idols. Paul says, wait a minute, those weren't just made up imagination, out of people's imagination, their own minds. There was demonic worship going on there, these temples. What pagans offer in sacrifice, 1 Corinthians 10, 20, they offer to demons and not to God. Now, they were, I suppose you could say they would be counted as churches in the yellow pages at Corinth. If they, of course, they didn't have yellow pages then. Um, but they'd be listed under churches or something. But they're not real true churches. They're false churches. And Revelation 2.9, um, Jesus says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, uh, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. And so uh, here in writing to the church in Smyrna, um, Jesus is saying there's, there's people in a Jewish synagogue, but they're not a true church. They're not trusting in Jesus as the Messiah. In fact, I don't know whether this referred to a Jewish synagogue that was hostile to the church, uh, perhaps. But anyway, uh, Jesus said they're a synagogue of Satan. It's a, a congregation of Satan. They're not a true church. They're a false church, okay? So there are false churches. And um, so Martin Luther... Uh, and from 1517 onward, and John Calvin, just a decade or so after that, and publishing his Institutes of the Christian Religion, first in 1536, they began to ask, well, how do we know what's a true church and what isn't? What about this local, local parish, this local Roman Catholic church? Is it a true church or not, compared to the churches that began to be formed by the Lutheran and Reformed groups? And they uh, both had these two standards, the pure preaching of the word that is teaching sound doctrine from the word, and the right administration of the sacraments, which was baptism and the Lord's Supper. And they said in their time that the Roman Catholic Church, as they understood it, was not a true church because it was not preaching that you could be saved by faith alone, in Christ alone. It was preaching salvation by works. And if people believed that, they wouldn't be saved. And so it didn't meet standard one the right or true preaching of the word. And then number two, the right administration of the sacraments means that there should be, <clears throat> there should be some <clears throat> control on who you give baptism and the Lord's Supper to. Not just everybody who happens to be born in the city should be automatically baptized. There should be some expectation of faith on the part of people who are baptized and then who participate in the Lord's Supper. And so they began to be very careful, saying, well, if you're going to partake of the Lord's Supper, you, as we did just uh, the last hour here in the church, um, that's, a, that's a testimony that you're taking into yourself, the bread symbolizing taking the benefits of Christ's death to yourself, the cup symbolizing taking the benefits of Christ's blood shed for, yourself into your, shed for you into yourself. It's showing physically that you are a believer in Jesus Christ and that his death saves you. Well, that shouldn't be given to people who don't have any faith at all, who, aren't, who don't show any evidence in their life. There should be some control on how you give the sacraments or what we would often call ordinances today. Okay? And then I would probably add one more today. And that, here's, here's the thing. You get, a, you get a campus crusade group at ASU, and they meet for... A Bible study and prayer during the week. They have kind of outreach meetings. And is that group of college students a church? I would say they're not a church because they're not 
trying to function as a church or attempting to function as a church. And in fact, if you go to any campus crusade group in any college campus in the United States, they'll say, we encourage our students to get involved in a church, get involved in a local church. And they don't meet on Sunday mornings. Why? Because they don't want to become a substitute for the church. They do some things, but they don't do everything. They might occasionally share the Lord's Supper, but they would almost never baptize people because if they start to baptize people, it's like, hey, we're, you know, you're part of us, you're part of the church, and, and so they, they would refrain from doing that. Uh, James Dobson's organization, Focus on the Family, that's a parachurch organization. Is that a church? No, it's not a church. It's a radio broadcast ministry and a publications ministry and a counseling ministry, but it's not a church. And so people have used this word parachurch to refer to things that are beside the church, alongside para, meaning beside. Um, in one sense, they're part of the universal church or the worldwide church, but they're not a local church, all right? Is, and some people say, oh, we shouldn't have any parachurch organizations because, um, you know, everything in the New Testament is done through the church. And I, I, you know, I think that Paul's missionary activities were a parachurch organization. He and Barnabas were sent out by the church at Antioch, and they were kind of a, a mission group. And they traveled, and they came back and reported to the church, and then they sent out again. They're, they're kind of the early example of a parachurch organization. They weren't a church. They were setting up other churches. So mission boards are parachurch organizations. And I happen to teach at a parachurch organization, Phoenix Seminary. It's not a church. We don't meet on Sunday morning. And back when I was at Trinity uh, in Illinois for 20 years, there was a beautiful chapel on campus, but they would never let anybody meet in their Sunday mornings to have church services. Why? Because they didn't want to start threatening the local church or trying to act as a church. So, so, so that's a little, uh, little qualification. I think something has to attempt to function as a church. But if those things are happening, it's attempting to function as a church and it's preaching sound doctrine generally and has right administration of the sacraments, then it is a church. So now with those, questions, those qualifications we ask, what churches are true and false churches today? I think that's really important because you move to another community, you want to say, hey, should I go to this thing or not? Is it a true church or not? And um, here's the kind of key question, especially that focuses on the first standard, the, the true preaching of the word. Will people who believe the primary teaching of the church believe a true gospel? Will they be saved if they believe what the church teaches? Well, I take the first example. Start out. What do you think? Is Scottsdale Bible Church a true church? Yes, I hope you say yes. <laughs> you should say yes. Yeah, I think it is a true church. Uh, it's, if you believe what the church teaches, you will be saved. Um, and I think it, it rightly uh, administers baptism to people who have exercised faith and, and um, uh, administers the Lord's Supper uh, to ask for people to examine their own hearts and, trust and be sure they're trusting in Christ. Um, and it attempts to function as a church. It meets on Sunday morning and has all the church activities. Well, what about the Roman Catholic Church? Hmm. I think that's not an easy question to answer with just a yes or a no. Um, I realize that there are some Roman Catholic parishes where there's so much emphasis on ritual and um, 
Well, uh, Margaret and I just toured some in uh, Budapest and then in Prague. And um, there's so much emphasis on, on ritual. And uh, if you go to the church week after week after week, you wouldn't hear anything or much of anything at all about salvation by trusting in Christ as your Savior. But uh, so much emphasis on just uh, the, the sacraments of the church, the uh, um, gaining forgiveness through the priesthood and uh, prayers to the saints and, and many other things, that many people have testified I, I, that in that kind of church, I did not hear the gospel for years, and I didn't know what it was to be a Christian. I'd say, probably that's not a true church. On the other hand, um, I would mention the church that Margaret and I had friends in in, uh, in Illinois, in Libertyville, right on Milwaukee Avenue there, St. Joseph Church. We lived near there for many years, and we knew many, many true believers in that church. They were in Bible studies, and the local parish priest or priests were encouraging people to read their Bibles and pray, and there was genuine faith in the, on the hearts of people. And so I would say that's a true church that had some doctrine that I think is really wrong, and we've talked about differences between Catholic and Protestant doctrine here in the past. So, so I think um, it's it, it depends on the local church um, or on the local parish with regard to the Roman Catholic Church. And I've heard, and this is secondhand, but I've heard in a number of places, for instance, in Latin America, that there's so much superstition and, and other things overlaying the, the teaching of the church that it just uh, it is not a true church. And, and so, um, so I think that's a hard question to answer with a yes or no. But now, let me just say one other thing before I go to the next line. What if I put Baptist churches up there? Huh? Some are and some aren't. See, uh, the, sadly, the church I grew up in uh, was an, uh, when, I was, uh, was when I was young, until about junior high age, was a Bible-believing church at that time, but it was an American Baptist church, and the denomination has gone way, way over into Protestant liberalism, what I would say by liberalism, not believing the Bible is the word of God, not believing that salvation comes through trust in Jesus as your Savior, and uh, not believing any of the supernatural things in the Bible. And it's really teaching of the denomination, by and large, and its leadership is not teaching the true gospel, I would say. And, and uh, there are many American Baptist churches, that denomination, which I would say by, the, by their doctrine, as I can understand it, it's just classic liberalism, not Christianity, that, it's, uh, that it would not be a true church. On the other hand, Margaret and I came from a Baptist church, a different kind of Baptist church in, uh, in Illinois, and it was definitely a true church. True church as much as Scottsdale Bible Church is a true church. So I think it would have to say it depends on the local congregation. But liberal Protestantism in general, this is the next line, it'd be characterized by thinking of Christianity as an entirely man-centered, man-made religion. Um, I, I have students read, when I teach Introduction to Theology, I have students read an essay by um, Gordon Kaufman, a professor at Harvard Divinity School, and he says, all theology is just the result of human imagination. We should never think that any, any uh, written words are the very words of God. That's arrogant. And so, uh, so if, if he's in charge of a church, that's just, that's just false teaching. That's Protestant liberalism. It's not Christianity. Back in the 1920s, J. Gresham Machen at Westminster Seminary, or was at Princeton then, later at Westminster, he wrote this book called um, 
Christianity and liberalism, in which he said, uh, we may say that the Roman Catholic Church is a, is a perversion or a distortion of the Christian faith, but liberalism is not Christianity at all. Um, and so even he made a distinction at that time. Mormons, the Church of Jesus Christ of, uh, of the Latter-day Saints, it says church on it in its title, um, and it has Jesus Christ in its name, but I would say with respect to my Mormon friends um, and respect for their uh, moral standards and kindness and uh, in many ways doing good for our, uh, the society in which they live, I do not think the Mormon church is a true church. I think it's a false church, and if you believe the doctrines of the Mormon church, you, you won't believe the right thing about God or about Christ or about salvation. Jehovah's Witnesses, the same. It's salvation by works and by witnessing. It's not a true church. So is that being clear, what, what we're saying? There are true and false churches? I know that's kind of strong language. I hope that isn't too troubling. Yeah. Oh, what's your name? Name? Deb. Just wait a second. Here we come. Where it says in the Bible, where two or three are gathered, there yep. I am in the midst of you. Yep. Yep. And then how do you deal with that versus the megachurch's prosperity preaching that's going on today? <laughs> oh, two big questions. Uh, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. I, I, don't, I, I think Jesus promises his presence, but it's in the context of a larger discipline of the church. And uh, so pro I, I don't know if two or three people would make a church, but... But surely Jesus is there. Yeah, I didn't talk about how big you have to be to be a church. I'm not sure how big you have to be to be a church. But, um, uh, yeah. <coughs> about the mega church. Yeah, well, we're part of one. It's the first time we've ever been part of one. But at 7,000, 7,000 per weekend, we're, we're a mega church here. Um, um, now, now you said something about prosperity gospel. Yeah. Um, the question is, if a church starts teaching, if you believe in Jesus, you're going to be healthy and wealthy. Um, I don't believe that. I think it's untrue. But does it so cloud the true gospel that people won't be saved if they follow it? I'd have to see individual examples. I'm just not sure. Uh, probably it doesn't make it a false church. But... But it might be a true church with not the best teaching. Okay. Yeah, Don. Wayne, you talked about uh, in your outline the right administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Yep, yep. M many of the mainline yep. churches uh, do infant baptism. Yep. And some of those churches are preaching really solid gospel. Yep. I was hoping I could get by without answering that question. <laughs> um, I, I, um, I would say that it's probably not the best administration of baptism, but the Bible-believing ones will require faith on the part of the parents, and they will see this as a... As a um, they will not see it as baptism saves the infant, they will see it as baptism is a sign that the infant is part of the, what they call the covenant community, the family of God, but they're still looking for individual profession of faith on the part of the child growing up. 
So, um, so I would say there's still a true church, absolutely, certainly, like our Presbyterian friends, our Bible-believing Episcopalian friends, Bible-believing Lutheran and Methodist friends, and things like that. I would disagree with them on baptism, but I would say they just got it. Um, they're, they're still not doing what Luther and Calvin were complaining about, baptizing everybody who's born in the village, whether there's any faith or not. See, and, 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 and you get that, for instance, in England today. People show up uh, at church uh, to be baptized as infants and to be married maybe and then to be buried. That doesn't really make you a believer. So that's the, there would be the difference. Okay? <laughs> there, they're approximately right administration of baptism, but, but uh, nah, I don't know if it's even approximately right. It's, uh, it's, uh, they've got the idea that saving faith is still necessary. Okay, yeah, good, good question. Though I didn't... Well, anyway, John. I was brought up in a sweeter covenant church. Okay, go ahead. It's, it's John. I was brought up in a Swedish covenant church, and they don't baptize adults essentially yeah and they said you when you are saved you you get the holy spirit yeah you're baptized by the holy spirit when you accept christ as your savior yep and well, i was at my mother's right before my mother died and we got in a major family argument because I, I was telling my mom that i had been baptized here yeah I said, and she said, well, you think it should be baptized and I said, yes it's a profession of your faith and it shows that you believe <laughs> yep so she wanted to get baptized, and I have a brother who, I mean, we were till 4 o'clock in the morning arguing about this. But what do you think of a church? I mean, everything else about that church tells me it's a true church. Yeah, yeah. And, and there are some things you shouldn't. But what would your, your statement be to, say, a, a Swedish covenant pastor? I, I, I wish he would have a different view of baptism, but it's not, it's not the problem that the, was that Luther and Calvin were complaining about, where they were thinking of it as magic. I mean, just like the action itself saved people. They're not teaching that. Um, I think they've got it a little messed up. So I, let me see. What should I do? This kind of makes this awkward thing to have in here, doesn't it? Because I'm not really insisting on this. Um, I should maybe say something about not having, not believing in that the that baptism saves you by, by by the action itself, and that's the Roman Catholic teaching. If you go through the action, it saves you, and and these churches don't believe that. So, huh. okay, yeah, Clyde. <laughs> okay, man, I have sophisticated, well-educated, theologically astute questioners here, and Clyde says. What about Quakers and the Salvation Army? Because they do not practice baptism. In the, they practice the Lord's Supper? Lord's Supper, but not baptism. They're just an exception. Um, they're not doing this. If you, get, if you get water sprinkled on you as an infant, you're automatically saved. That's the wrong thing. As long as they're not doing that, I think they come on to... Maybe I shouldn't keep this number two. In there. <laughs> they have spiritual baptism. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, I, and I think that with Salvation Army and Quakers, I think it's the same thing. Uh, that is, 
there are some that have gone off way in a very liberal direction or not through churches with the Quakers, for instance. But some, like over in California, there are some friends, uh, churches some, that are Quakers that are still very true to their original heritage, which is very much Bible-believing and preaching salvation by faith alone. And Salvation Army organization, too. There's still differences there. Yeah, okay. Well, way in the back. Yep, Don. Uh, considering salvation, yep. uh, let's take a family out of the millions that are involved in all these other churches. Let's say that that family grew up in a family. The, the, the husband and wife both grew up in families. If you pick whichever one you want. And they truly believe uh, the scriptures. They put their faith in God. Yeah. Uh, they they grow up, get married, have children. Their children are now going to that church. And this this family now is totally immersed in that religion, if you want to call it. Yeah. Um, you're using the words true church and false church. What... What then happens with the salvation of this family? Depends on the individuals. It depends on whether the individual child comes to trust in Christ personally. So we, I, I, I don't think God automatically saves the children when a husband or a wife becomes a believer. But the individual children have to trust have themselves to put trust in Christ as Savior. So it's hard to say. Although it's often God's way to begin. Margaret came to trust in Christ. Her brother, in very close point in time, came to trust in Christ. And then her father came to trust in Christ before he died. Then her mom came to trust in Christ. And it was kind of interesting to see one after another family member become saved. So way back in the back, your name... I have questions. Uh, I have encountered some churches. They say that you have to get baptized. Yeah. I mean, if you don't get baptized, you lose your salvation. Yeah. <laughs> and then also there are some churches says, if you don't speak in tongue, yep. you don't have salvation. Yeah. Oh boy. And uh, and there are some churches says, they preach true gospel. Yeah. I mean, or full gospel. Sorry, full gospel. And if you don't take full gospel, you yep. are not saved. Yeah. I mean. Would, would you consider them false church? Okay. So here's what we've got to do. <laughs> I, I was hoping to get a marker board in here today, and it was supposed to appear, but it didn't appear. So I hope next week we get it. But what I want you to do is picture a, a line, all right? And in the middle of the line, we, we divide it in half. And on the left half, we put false churches, and on the right half, we put true churches. But then, on that line, the true churches part, we're going to say there are more pure and less pure churches. See, and as they, as they get over toward false, they become less pure. And when you're asking me about the health and wealth gospel church, it's, it's not a false church, but it's less pure. It's got some incorrect doctrine. And, and I think if a church says you have to be baptized to be saved, I think it's less pure. It's got some incorrect doctrine. In fact, it, it could go over to trusting in baptism rather than trusting in Christ for salvation. Then, then it's not preaching a true gospel. But more, more ordinarily, the, the Christian church movement, for instance, would say you have to be baptized to be saved. I would differ with that. I would say it's adding a work, work to salvation. 
but I think it's still preaching a true gospel. And, and so if people say you've got to speak in tongues to be saved, I think that's false. I don't think it's right. Uh, I think it's adding something, but I don't think it means they're not preaching a true gospel. So there are some less pure churches, but it doesn't make them a false church. That's, I'm going to put all those in that category, and that's kind of the next part of the outline. And Since Jesus was immersed, yep. you know, and baptized that way, <laughs> which I believe was an outgrowth of the mikvah experience in Judaism, but where did we get, where did the churches get into sprinkling? I was sprinkled. <laughs> I was raised an Episcopalian. Yeah. And my brother's an Episcopal minister. Yeah. Where, where did the church start to do that? Don't know. <laughs> I don't, I don't know when sprinkling began, it, early, early history of the church, but I'm, I don't know the history exactly. Okay, Shirley, and then we're going to, and then I've just got to go well, on. I'd like to go after that gentleman. He's had his hand up. Yeah, okay. Go ahead. Okay, Patrick. Hey, well, like, uh, you know, uh, according to the gospel, you know, uh, here's where I argue against uh, you got to be baptized to be saved. Baloney. Two thieves dying on each side of Jesus. You know the story. I, I didn't hear what you said. You got to be baptized to be saved. That's right. baloney. Uh-huh. Two thieves dying on each side of Jesus. Oh, yes. One rejected him. Yep. The other one believed. Yep. Jesus told the man, I tell you the truth. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Yes. You okay. didn't say, no, that's not good enough. You got religion. You've been baptized. Can I interest you in a copy of the Watchtower while we're hanging no, here no, dying? No, no. <laughs> it was too late for that. Of course, you know, the final words of evil can evil okay. before he died. <clears throat> Believe in Jesus Christ. Okay. He got it. <laughs> Thanks, Patrick. Yeah, the thief on the cross was not baptized, and Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay, about the, what you said about the Baptists. I grew up Baptist. Yep. So and... The Southern Baptists do things a little bit differently. They don't like ministers that go to seminary because they feel like the ministers should be called by God. They should have a spiritual experience, and they're called by God, and so then they start preaching. Um, You said something about the, well, as far as the baptism goes, is there's nothing in the Bible that says you have to be baptized. Now, God wanted his son to be baptized, and so he obeyed his father. Yep. Um, I'm with you on that, Shirley. Right. Yeah. Good. Thanks. Okay, we're going to go on. Uh, we could talk about different churches all day long, couldn't we? Okay. Um, what, before I go on to the next point, let me say why I brought up this true and false churches. It's just a good category to have in mind because we... Mm. Because if you move to another community, um, uh, you may have to decide, well, now what church am I going to go to? I think you have freedom to go to a true church of various sorts where you believe God calls you, but I don't think you have freedom to go to a false church and, uh, say, become part of it and try to straighten it out or something like that. Um, you should be part of a genuine fellowship of believers. And that's the reason for bringing that up. There's another reason. Um, If a pastor is in a community and he wants to have fellowship with other pastors, then 
he should have fellowship with pastors of true churches, not with outright liberal, unbelieving pastors. Uh, and uh, Or, Kevin, I see you here on a mission field. I think it would be right to make a distinction between having fellowship with other missionaries who are part of the true Church of Christ universally, but not share the same kind of cooperation and fellowship with people who are preaching a false gospel, Jehovah's Witnesses, say, or Mormons, or something like that. And um, as far as cooperation in mission activities or cooperation in sending kids to a camp sponsored by a certain church, all the time we're making decisions on what's a true church and what's a false church. And I think we can support things if there's a true church and, and by and large, a true gospel being preached, but where it's not, I don't think we should just, oh, for the sake of friendship or something like that, get involved in support. So that's why it's it's a useful concept to have. All right, let's go on. One last thing before we end this outline. I think I'd better go on because I took like 20 minutes or so to, uh, to take questions, and I'm seeing like people saying by their body language, Wayne, get on with the outline. You're not going to get done. So purposes of the church. Here's one more thing to remember. Ministry to God, worship. There's one purpose of the church. We are to sing with grace in our hearts to the Lord. Colossians 3.16. Um, uh, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So there's something the church should do, and there are a lot of verses about worship. That's one purpose. Number two, there's a ministry to believers, and what would be called nurture, or building up the body of Christ, Ephesians 4, 11 to 13. That's another purpose of the church, and that's why we come. That's one of the reasons we come to church. We come to church to worship together. We come to church to be built up and learn. Number three... There's a ministry to the world, and there's a twofold ministry. One is evangelism, sharing the gospel, and the other is mercy, uh, having shelters for homeless, having, having assistance to unwed mothers, uh, uh, having um, uh, care for the poor, etc. Those are ministries of mercy. So ministry to the world and evangelism is Matthew 28:18-20, where Jesus said, "Make disciples of all nations." And Luke 6:35 to 36, Jesus says, we should be, love your enemies, do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great, and you'll be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful. So three purposes, worship, ministry, and evangelism and mercy. Now, which one of these is most important? I'm hearing different answers, and I think that's what I want. That is, be careful that you don't try to make anyone most important, I think would be my answer. That is, they're all three important. And, and uh, I know if you're a choir director, you tend to make worship the most important. And if you are a seminary professor, you try to make nurture and building up the most important, Right. And if you are evangelist, you say, well, what could be more important than bringing people into the kingdom of God, evangelism, or, you know, uh, but I think that if they're all three commanded, we have to say they're all three important. And there is a, there's, help, there's a help in that concept in that it's a warning to every church not to become overly focused exclusively on just one. See, there can't, I know of churches where they're so involved in building up and teaching that all they do is teach the same people over and over again and they don't ever do any evangelism. And they're really not focusing much on worship. 
Because they just, oh, I think build up the body of Christ and we're building and they become kind of ingrown and just teaching oriented. There are other churches where they think, what could be more important than saving souls? So we've got to bring people into the kingdom, baptize them, and then don't pay any attention to them anymore. They're saved. And they're all, all evangelism, all evangelism, all evangelism, and they're, they're you know, a mile wide and an inch deep. And that church eventually is going to fade away because it doesn't have deep roots. It doesn't have deep teaching. And I suppose, I don't know if there are churches that are totally devoted to worship. Oh, yeah, you know, there can be kind of older traditional churches where they develop this really professional kind of music ministry and they give concerts all the time, but that's all they do. And they're not reaching out and nobody's becoming Christians. And they're not really teaching and growing. They're just doing the music. So there are dangers if we overemphasize any one. We should kind of always say, now, how are we doing as a church? Are we really, are we really, really fulfilling our purpose of worship and ministry to God? Or does that need attention? Are we really teaching and growing? Or does that need attention? And are we really doing evangelism? Or does that need attention? The church should be doing all three. Okay? But that's a different question from which should you emphasize most? Isn't it? Because God calls people to different ministries and different kind of gifts. Um, I was going to pick out Wayne and Bev back here who do marriage ministry. That's mostly building up the body, although I suppose you're ministering to non-Christians too, so it's kind of a combination of evangelism and, and building up. 95% of my work in the Lord's work is the second one, the, the nurture. It's building up. It's writing to Christians. It's teaching Christians. That's just what I think God has called me to do. Joe Bubar, who uh, leads our music ministry now, 95% of his work in the church is worship. Isn't it? And that's right. Billy Graham, 95% of his work is evangelism. And that's right. That's what God called him to do. So it's okay to emphasize one or another and, uh, in your own life as long as the whole church is working together and doing all three. Are you happy with that? Okay. Now, Shirley. Is it your name? Is your name Shirley? Yes. Okay, Shirley. I think mercy is the most important one because if you have mercy, you are, you are teaching and you are evangelist and you are drawing souls to God because you have mercy. To have mercy, you have suffered greatly in your life and you are doing all of these things. Also, one other point that you're not going to want me to tell you is that when you were talking about the Catholics, well, I say they are a true church. There are a lot of people in Scottsdale that hate Scottsdale Bible Church because they think they're against Catholics. Well, they do baptize, and they used to um, go, some of them still go to uh, confess their sins to the priests, but a lot of them now, they pray to God about their sins. And they um, believe in Christ. They believe in John 3.16. They believe everything we do, and they do preach from the Bible. 
Well, then I would say that that local Catholic parish is a true church. I'm not disagreeing with that. I'm just thinking that not all of them are that way. As far as mercy being the most important, surely, I think you're calling attention to something that's really important, and that is that all of these purposes contribute to each other. That is, you're right, if people have mercy, they will be reaching out and doing evangelism, and they will be get, doing nurture and, having, and helping others, and that may contribute to evangelism. But then I'd back up and say, you know what, all of them contribute to each other. If people are genuinely worshiping, well, their hearts are going to want to bring others in to the church. And worship, well, just a second now, hold on, hold on, hold on. Worship will motivate people to do evangelism. And worship is edifying because it teaches us about God. In the same way, uh, if I'm teaching, that's nurturing the church, but I can teach about worship. And that contributes to worship. And I can teach how people should think about God, which enriches our worship. And I can teach about evangelism and mercy. And so that contribute. So they all contribute to each other. People here at Scottsdale Bible who come every Sunday and they go to the service and they go to the Richmond class and they show no mercy. Yeah. Well, you and I agree that isn't what should happen. Maybe uh, we can talk to him afterward. <laughs> but I, I, uh, I'm with you on that, Shirley. That, that, isn't what, uh, that isn't what should be happening. And that's, it's, uh, that's what we hope would change, not what we hope would be representative of the church. Okay. Good. Thanks. Okay. Uh, Jack, last... Um, Last comment? No? Well, I'm going to go to, to chapter 45 here. Well, want to say something, Jack? Well, I, we're having some of this conversation in, the, in our, our church now. My, my concern, Wayne, is that I think um, in this day and age, um, many, of the churches, many of the churches that we see are majoring on grace and mercy and minoring on truth, mm -hmm. and um, it does get out of balance, and, and you get um, the seeker-friendly uh, churches that, that come out of that, and to me, um, if true, I think what God wants of us is obedience, mm -hmm. and if we are uh, teaching truth, mm -hmm. um, then out of that will come grace, mercy, Evang yeah. evangelism yeah. and um, I'm just concerned with you know what we see um, is more of a major on the grace and mercy we do need to be grace who, who would who would say you know as a Christian we shouldn't evangelize or we shouldn't be merciful my goodness um, uh, look at what we've been given but when you read the scriptures even though Paul starts his letters and says grace and mercy you know I come to uh, he, he moves right in and lamb blasts him uh, with the truth uh, after that. And so, anyway. Okay, uh, Jack, um, what you say, I'm going to say in my own words, <clears throat> beware, always beware if a church begins to play only one note. Um, all the area of worship has to be kept <clears throat> active. And all the area of teaching 
<clears throat> has to be kept active, and all evangelism has to be kept active, and we've got to be sure we're paying attention to all of these areas, and uh, not just playing the same note on the on same uh, string on the guitar again, again, because then other things start to be neglected. Well, we need to get that turned on. Sorry. The um, the truth to me is the is the medicine, and grace and mercy is kind of a candy coating that um, makes it go down uh, maybe a little easier. But out of that really needs to come obedience. Okay. If uh, that to me that would be the sign of a healthy Good. church. If you have uh, obedient yep. Yep. people wandering around evangelizing yep. and yeah. showing mercy. See, now I come back to what Shirley said. If people are not showing mercy, they're not being obedient. Yeah, that's what I was. Yeah. I, I wanted so to then say. That's wrong. That I feel so badly that yeah. you've been uh, that you've been hurt and that you haven't uh, seen mercy exhibited by. But uh, but all. Yeah, yeah, and that is and that yeah. is. Um, Okay, I'm going to go on. Thank you. Number 45. We're going to get just five minutes into this next outline, and then I've got my lesson all prepared for next week. So let's go on to chapter 45. And um, um, this kind of links right into what we've been talking about, uh, the purity and unity of the church. Um, So more pure and less pure churches. And look. A lot of what we've been talking about here has to do with this concept, not with true and false. Paul's letters to the Philippians and Thessalonians reveal that they were relatively free from major doctrinal and moral problems, as opposed to serious problems reflected in Paul's letters to the Galatians and the Corinthians. So, for instance, Philippians 1. Look at how he talks to them. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Oh, he wanted to come back to Philippi and visit that church. They loved him. They were striving to do what he said. They were just, they they were on his side. There weren't any major doctrinal errors that he could see. There was a little bit of division he talked about, but, but mainly he was thankful for them. And you Philippians know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. They were supporting him, caring for him. Wow, he loved that church. Galatian, the Galatian churches, however, I mean, just after a brief introduction, he says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. That's a really different tone from the Philippians, isn't it? Not that there's another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one he received, let him be accursed. Galatians 3.1, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? <laughs> I mean, this is, you've got trouble here. And uh, the Corinthians, again, a lot of things that he has to deal with. Um, So what we have is we have more pure and less pure churches. This is the diagram I wanted to use. 
there are false churches over here, and I'm not just going to put the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons over here and outright liberal churches, Protestant liberal churches. But there are true churches that are more pure and less pure. And we put them on a scale. And some of you have brought up areas where, at least I would say, no, it seems to me their doctrine is not as good as it should be. Or their conduct is not as good as it should be. And uh, people aren't acting with the kind of mercy and compassion that they should be, etc. Now, how do we decide what makes a church more pure or less pure? The purity of the church is its degree of freedom from wrong doctrine and conduct and its degree of conformity to God's revealed will for the church. But the unity of the church is something else. It's degree of freedom from divisions among true Christians. Now, here's the puzzle, and I'm going to say this next week in more detail. We are to strive for the purity and the unity of the visible church. The purity and the unity. The purity, we want the church to become better. But the unity, we don't want it to split into... Little tiny churches of one and two people can just agree with each other, and that's it. Do, do you see the, the point? And there's always going to be a struggle. So when we come back next week, we're going to talk about 12 signs of a more pure church, and they're right there listed on your outline, and that's where we're going to pick up next week. Anybody with one last comment? That's the big conceptual framework, and then we'll fill in the details about more pure and less pure churches next week. Yeah, John, last comment. Would it, would it be fair to say that Would it be fair to say that a person could be saved and uh, walking with the Lord Jesus Christ in spite of the teaching of a particular church? Yes, yes, yes. I should say that. That's a really good last comment, John. I think there are people who are saved in the Mormon church, but they're saved in spite of what the Mormon church teaches, not because of what it teaches, okay? And probably so with some Jehovah's Witnesses as well. But that doesn't make it a true church. It just means that those people are, they're probably really uncomfortable with being there, but for some reason they're there. Yes, that could be. Okay, and in liberal Protestant churches too. There can be people who are genuinely saved, but it's not a true church, Okay. Oh, boy. You feel like we can sing? It's a great hymn about the church. Um, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. Let's, uh, let's stand and sing. Next week.